0: I do not feel like I've done enough. In 25 years of ministry, this is a common sentiment from people, especially when it comes to death. When they realize that their death is imminent and they have time to prepare for it, to think about it, to reflect on it, Even this week, I met with a friend who was told that death could be soon, and they wanted to ask me that question, how do I know if I've done enough? Now, this person is a Christian, committed Christian, believes the gospel, testified to faith in Christ, but even at the end, had regrets looking back. I wish I would have done more. I, I don't feel like I've done enough. And it was one of those moments that has happened often, in 25 years of ministry, where I realize even the most Christ-like among us, even those who are the most committed Christians, sacrificial, they give their life over to the gospel in the context of a church, and they love their community, they love their family. Even the most committed among us, the most Christ-like among us, never feel like they do enough or if they've done enough when it comes to the end. And my answer is the same in those moments. You haven't done enough. And anyone who comes to death and feels like they've done enough doesn't understand what this life is all about. There's always more you can do. You're always going to look back on your life and wish you had done more or even done things differently. You're always going to have regrets. None of us will die without regrets. And none of us will ever die having done enough. And the good news is, our eternity isn't dependent on us doing enough. It's totally and solely dependent upon Jesus, who has done it all for us. Jesus is the one who has done enough for our sins, who has done enough to defeat death, and we will only stand before God sufficient and confident in him. And he's done enough, and that's how we live our life. I think I I do think these questions are important but I think a better question is not have I done enough and I think a question for all of us who still have death in front of us today is to ask this question did I do what matters because there's always going to be more I can do there's always going to be more good things and, and more uh, I can give, more love I can show. We're always gonna to come to the end and look back and say I could have done more, but I think a better question, and I think a question that will really hone our lives and give us confidence in, in who we are and, and, and where God has put us and what he has called us to do is to ask the question, am I really doing what matters? Well, one of my greatest fears, and it's kind of a cliche, is that I would accomplish thousands of things in this life that will never matter for eternity. That I will get to the end and been successful at so many things. And yet, those things don't matter for eternity. And I think that's a very dangerous for a church we exist in a context where we can do a lot of stuff and we can give ourselves over to a lot of things and yet when Jesus shuts the doors on Ashland Church the question will be did we do anything that really mattered did we do anything that will matter for eternity And Jesus, in the Great Commission here, he sets the guardrails. He puts us in a context where we can answer that question. Am I doing what matters? Well, Jesus tells us what matters here. These are the last words to his disciples. And he wants to be very clear what their mission is going to be. In these four verses, we find exactly what Jesus would have us to do. It is our mission statement. Who do we want to be? What do we want to do? What sort of impact do we want to have in the world? Well, we go before Jesus here and we see what Jesus believes matters and how Jesus will impact The world. Notice verse 16, Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, before the cross, before the crucifixion, Jesus promised them he would be raised from the dead and he would meet them at this place, a mountain that oversaw the Sea of Galilee. Now, notice there's no Judas. He has hung himself in despair. This is pre Matthias and Paul. This is after the resurrection where Jesus has spent days showing himself, giving evidence of the resurrection to hundreds. But he gathers them on a mountain. And why does he do that? When the Bible, mountains communicate authority. They communicate weight. Think about when God is giving his law to the people of Israel. They gather before Mount Sinai, and it quakes, and there's lightning, and there's smoke. And the people of God say, We're, we don't want to approach this mountain. Moses, you go up for us. You go hear what God has for us, and God gives the law, what he would require of his people. And here we have the same thing going on as Jesus gathers his disciple, disciples on this mountain. We see his authority. We see God's word in Christ high and lifted up. And he's going he's to give them the law, what he requires of them as his disciples. You imagine them standing there over the Sea of Galilee, these, these men where, where Jesus has called them to himself on the shores of this sea. And he has promised them, you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And as he is going to give them this mission, they are looking out over the sea, reminded of who they are, which is what Jesus does here. Notice verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Before their eyes, they see a former corpse who has defeated sin and death, and the only natural response is to get on their face, to bow before him. They feel his authority and his person, and it presses them to the ground. We think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6 as he goes into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he's trying to claw through the concrete to get away from him because he realizes who God's king is in glory. He is holy, he is holy, holy. And the, the whole earth is full of his glory and Isaiah bows before him in fear. The same thing's going on with the disciples. This man that they have walked with for three years, their friend, their teacher, this rabbi who was crucified. Now they are shoving their face in the dirt and rocks on the side of this mountain because they realize who he is. But notice the text says, but some doubt it. And even as I say that, you say, how could anyone doubt? Well, there are folks here today who doubt. We have a whole Bible that declares the truthfulness and the the glory of Christ. And there are folks here who have heard this over and over and over, and they still doubt it's true. The same thing went on with the disciples. There were hanger-ons who were just in it for the Jesus show from town to town. And maybe they showed up to see, okay, what's going to happen next? And peering into the eyes of the risen king, they still doubt. And with our Bibles in hand, we say, how in the world could that happen? I wouldn't doubt. There's no way I would. Well, just imagine walking up to this mountain and seeing a Middle Eastern man standing before a bunch of fishermen and carpenters who are bowed prostrate before him. And he's saying, you know what we're going to do, guys? We're going to take over the world. I want you to go tell everybody I'm king. With no context, you walk up on that scene and you're calling the authorities. Say, I don't know what's going on in this mountain. Terrorism, I don't know. Somebody's got to get control of this. This doesn't seem right. Right. And you've got to be struck with the oddness of this. You've got to feel this is cultish. This is weird. This doesn't make any sense. And yet, at the same time, you by gathering here today, and especially if you are a Christian and you're a member of this church, this is what you're in on. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi claiming to have once been dead but is now alive and tells you to go tell everybody about him. By the way, that's the only way that everything you're a part of and who you are in this life matters. Is if you get in on what he's doing here. Notice verse 18. He came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am God's ultimate king. I am the end all be all. Notice all authority. This word means weight. This word means gravity. And Jesus says, I have gravity. I have it all in heaven and on earth. Now we know in heaven, Jesus, God's son, is, is king of heaven. The angels bow before the throne and worship him. Even so now, he is at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. We know God has given him authority in heaven. But notice he says, and on earth. He has displayed who he is and his kingdom and his power and his authority on the earth. This is what he he meant when he said the kingdom is at hand. He began to cast out demons, heal the sick, control nature, raised a man from the dead. He has said the authority and power of the kingdom of heaven has come to earth and he has displayed it. And then he died on a cross and defeated sin and he's raised from the dead, he's defeated death. What he says is, I have power over everything you see and everything you don't see. I'm the end all be all king. Everything begins and ends with me. And I've proven it. Proven it by defeating sin and death. And the truth of our life starts here. God has granted that only Jesus be his king. Not me, not you, or anyone else. And he raised him from the dead to prove it. So first of all, we see this Act of worship, they're bowing before him, understanding his authority, and then we see this declaration of authority. And I want you to see something here as we begin. As we begin, you're like, Well, you've been preaching for 20 minutes already. This act of worship and this declaration of authority come together. To worship means to declare someone's worth, weight, or gravity, someone's authority. They bow before him, understanding his authority. And then he's going to command them based upon his authority. Your worship and your obedience to Christ ultimately are one in the same. You are declaring you are ultimate authority in worship. We've sung today. We've declared that. Crown him. You are king of glory. You have ultimate authority Well, you are a hypocrite if you leave here and disobey him because you really didn't believe what you just declared in worship. And Jesus wants us to see that here. You worship me, you see that I have all authority. Okay, now you're gonna obey me as the one who has all authority. You've gotta see that in your life. You've gotta pray today in this place that what you have declared with your mouth, what you have prayed, What what you have sung will be proven true this week. That yes, Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy. You have all glory. You have all authority. You have all the gravitas. You weigh more than anything else in my life. And I'm going to prove it by doing what you say. We obey the one who has ultimate authority. The one who we worship as ultimate authority. And so our worship and obedience, specifically with the Great Commission, come together. If your worship today was really just self-idolatry, you came in and wanted to feel more better about yourself, you wanted to have an experience, you wanted to have feelings, when you leave here, there's going to be no obedience. But if you come in and you say, this is about Jesus... I've said you're worthy. I've heard your word as the most authoritative thing in my life. I'm ready to go. And so missions and worship go together in this way. Will you obey the Great Commission? Will you be a part of it? Well, the question is, is he worthy? Is he worthy of your obedience? Is he worthy? What does he call us to do? Notice verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You've heard this probably many times If you've been around church stuff, notice go. It's as you're going. Going is assumed. His authority, who he is, this announcement to the disciples propels them to the ends of the earth. If he's God's king, we got to tell everybody about him. So it's assumed they will go. But as they are going, notice what they're doing, making disciples to create, to cause, make, disciples, which is just followers, followers of Jesus. The same way these fishermen, tax collectors, shepherds, common men, the same way they dropped everything to follow Jesus, he says, I want you to go into the world. And you tell everyone to follow me the same way you're following me. Make disciples the same way I've made disciples. Based on his authority, based on his allegiance. Command others, specifically among the nations, to follow me. To to walk with me the same way you have. And one of the ways to think about doing this is, Paul says this, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ. I'm going to show you what it looks like to follow Christ. You follow me. And we continue that process in all of life. As dads, as moms, as students, at our jobs, employees, wherever we are, we're calling people to follow Christ the way that we are following Christ. So first of all, you've got to be following Christ. And then you just call people, walk with me as I walk with him. It's that simple Don't make it any more complicated than that. But notice he says, make disciples of all nations. Now, the basic form of this word just means non-Jews. And we read and together the story of the Tower of Babel where God separated the people of the earth into various languages, which then made up various cultures that lived in various geography, But out of all of the peoples of the earth, God adopted one nation in Abraham. And then everyone beyond that nation, biblically, was just known as Gentiles, the nations. So it's a basic form. That's what it means. But for mission purposes, we usually define this as any barrier, where there's a a distinct barrier or language or even geography that we have to cross to make disciples among the nations. And, and so what do we do here? We go into various cultures. We, we grow, go across language barriers. We travel into, th- through geography to make disciples, to call the nations in all places everywhere to the ends of the earth to follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. Now, this means we announce We announce Jesus as king, as we see displayed here in this act of worship, in this declaration of authority. We go into, the the good news is this. It is the good news of Jesus' authority. And he has displayed that authority over sin and death, at the cross and in the resurrection. He is raised from the dead. He is the right hand of God. And we go to the nations and we say, good news. Jesus is on the move. And he has already taken sin, overtaken sin at the cross. He's defeated sin, your sin, your idolatry, your selfishness, your lack of love, your impatience. He's defeated your sin. He died for your sin on the cross, no matter what it looks like in whatever culture. And he's been raised from the dead. Whatever you think about death and the afterlife, your ancestors, how all of that works out. Well, Jesus has been raised from the dead and you will stand before him. And your only hope is to bow before him now as king and to accept forgiveness for your sin, to live with him forever. That's, your only, that's what we announce, and that's good news. We announce that to every nation. The Great Commission is to announce Jesus as king and command the nations to follow him. Now, notice... Make disciples is a command. It's a command to command the nations to follow Jesus. You can't get around it. And it's a command for anyone who is following Jesus. You are commanded to make disciples. And here we see you are commanded to to make disciples that somehow reaches the nations. Somehow it reaches other cultures, geography, language. you you got to think about your life. How am I making disciples that's stretching to the ends of the earth? How, how is my life plugged into that? Because that's what Jesus says matters. Ultimately, everything else is under that umbrella. And it begins today by you understanding there is never any happiness in disobedience. One of the reasons your discontent And you're not happy comes down to this command right here. This is the first command in following Christ, is that you would make other followers of Christ. And if you skip over this, everything else is going to be out of whack in the rest of your life. And you're not going to be happy because you're going to be living in disobedience. It is a command. And by the way, there's no joy in any church that disregards this command. No joy. What happens is we huddle together and we're okay with our status quo. We're never thinking about the nations. We're never thinking about what's going on out there. we got to get together and we got to survive with the way we do things. And we enter status quo survival mode and everybody dies. And it's over. And maybe it didn't matter. We don't want to be that church. We want to have great joy and delight and hope and thinking, does this matter? Does it matter? Are we obeying Christ? And it's going to begin today on a personal level with you asking the question, How am I making disciples of the ends of the earth? How is my ministry, my mission, my witness stretching to the ends of the earth, to the nations? And today it's going to involve some of us repenting of pursuits that are keeping us from this command. You're just going to have to repent of it. I don't know how to say it. You've ordered your life in a way where you can't fulfill this command. And you're going to have to turn from those things. And then you're going to have to strategize. I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions for everybody here, but you're going to have to ask the question, how am I making disciples here, and how am I plugging my life into the ends of the earth where the nations are to see disciples made there? Am I on a pursuit for comfort and safety and the status quo? And then I'm gonna die. And will I've done anything that mattered? We'll start here. And one of the things you can ask is what about all the things I'm doing here? Do I have to give those things up? No. Not all of them, some of them you might. Sinful pursuits. But you can ask the question here what am I doing as a disciple of Christ at work, at school, in my home? at the ball field, at the gym? What what am I doing here as a witness, as a disciple? And how am I going to plug that into the ends of the earth in making disciples of all nations? And I want you to pray. Like, I can't answer it for you. If I tried today to make a plan for everybody here, that would be called legalism. And I'm not going to do it you got to ask the question, how can I obey the command? And it begins by just praying, God, use me. (laughs) Use me. You show me, God, how my money, how my time, how my family, how my vacation, you show me how all that fits into this. My travel miles, how does it fit? The things that I'm stacking up for myself, how can I use it for mission? It's what matters. Remember that. Notice he continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, literally he says immersing them, which implies water. And baptism is a sign of identification. But one of the things, we get hung up here on baptism and we fail to see the galactic doctrine that's always attached to baptism. Notice, in the name of reputation of Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I'm taking on the name of God, and not just any God, the Trinitarian God of the Bible. That's weighty. That that is cosmic. The the one who is three different persons, and yet they are all equal in their divinity, and they are God. God. Remember, we were reading the story of Babel, and God said to one another, and we don't know who was saying what. He said, let us go down. God is a trinity. We worship God as trinity. This means baptism is not a generic act of a generic faith in the name of a generic God. It is a cosmic thing that goes on. And the church has a responsibility at every baptism to explain what is going on. What is this we are doing here, down by the creek, in the river, in the pond, the horse trough, in the ornate, multi-million-dollar swimming pool on the state? What are we doing? We're taking on the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're saying, God saved me. God saved this person. So who is this God, and how did he save? And if baptism is a picture of all these things, it has to be explained. It's not generic. It's cosmically. I like the word cosmic. It is cosmically important. I know some of you keep laughing when I say it, so there you go, playing bingo or something, you're winning today. But here we see what baptism is taking the name of the God of the Bible, which means we become a part of a new family. I've heard people explain baptism as kind of the wedding ceremony or the wedding ring. I think all of those analogies can be true. But I'd like for us today to think of it in terms of the signing of an adoption deed. That's what's happening at baptism. We're coming together and we're saying the Father has set his love upon this person. The Father, God the Father, set his love upon this person. How do we know it? He sent the Son to die for them. And this person being baptized has believed in Jesus. And this means what what Paul tells us, they are in Christ. They've been immersed. They've been baptized into Christ. They are intertwined with Christ in a way that you can't tell them apart from Christ. God doesn't see them any differently than he sees Christ. And therefore, they relate to God as a father the same way Jesus relates to God as his father. That's what's happened there. Let's explain it. Let's stop and let's talk about it. Let's talk about what's going on here. And all of this was made made active or made alive by the Spirit of God that transformed their heart, made them alive, connected them to God in Christ, and when he connected them to God in Christ, he baptized them into a body. You can't separate Christ, the head of the church, from the body of the church. They have been immersed into the body of the church. We celebrate a new family member That we're joined to not by flesh and blood, but by the cosmic, there it is again, galactic, I'll say that too, work of the Spirit of God. So important. It's not a Baptist bar mitzvah. Baptism isn't our mascot. It is the deed that says this person is a child of God. And why is that important? The same way you pull out that social security card, the same way you're called to identify yourself, you remember that moment where the church said authoritatively to you, the gospel is true, and if you believe it, you're a child of God. And you pull, I have two sons that were adopted from another country, and we have stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of paper to say to anyone who ever asks, Yes, they're ours. They're ours. Here's, here's the deed. <laughs> they're ours. And baptism is your adoption deed. And you have to look back on it from time and time again to remember who you are. When you are doubting, oh no, I've been immersed been immersed into the love of God in Christ by the Spirit of God. I remember that this is true and I cling to the truth that was declared in my baptism. It doesn't save you, but it reminds you who you are. And we march across the globe with this act. Verse 20, I got to hurry up. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice this is a part of the Great Commission, teaching. We're going, we're making, and then we're instructing. And it's authoritative training. Why? Because it's all that Jesus has commanded. Notice the word observe. It means to hear and do. Part of the great commission is training in holiness, telling people your life is different now because of the commands of Christ. You believe him, you'll want to follow him. You'll want to obey him. We're going to teach you how to do it. And so our mission is not to share the gospel, get folks saved, and move on to the next person. We have a responsibility to train every disciple to obey all the commands of Jesus. And what does those commands include? Making disciples of all nations. And so this command is multiplied throughout the process. It is mission malpractice to scatter seed and never feed it and never water it and never make sure it's growing. No, we teach all that Jesus has commanded. And so how do we do that? Well, I think it's important to ask the disciples, hey guys, how'd y'all do it? When y'all left the mountain, what did y'all do? How did y'all obey Jesus? We know the Spirit comes down and empowers them to be witnesses, but then what does that look like? Well, throughout the book of Acts, we see it was in establishing churches Local churches throughout the world. That's how they did it. They gathered people together around the ordinances, around the preaching of the Word of God, around the celebrating of the mission, around church discipline. This is what they did in the New Testament. This is how they taught churches in the New Testament, is by having churches. You hold in your hand a New Testament which is written to who? Local churches. That's how they taught them all that Jesus commanded. The Spirit of God comes down and sends letters to churches and tells them, no, that's a false gospel. Don't believe what those folks are teaching. You love one another. You show one another mercy. You consider one another. You can't obey half of the New Testament, if not more, without being a part of a local church. This is what the disciples did from this point is they established churches. Disciples make disciples in and through churches planting churches. This is how it happened. This is the priority of all missions. If you have in your hand letters to churches that you use in your discipleship program, but you don't talk about the church, do you see the disconnect? Do you see the disconnect? This is how the disciples did it. And it's not just biblical It's the most effective way for us to use our resources. We always ask this question. What will this mission work look like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? What will it look like? Well, when it's a part of planting churches, aiding churches, supporting churches, we can answer that question prayerfully and hopefully there are churches and disciples who are living under the authority of all that Jesus has commanded. And so we ask, what's the long game? How are we helping churches plant churches? That, that is our priority. That's where we want to get in on what matters. And you've got to ask that question. As you spend your life, as you spend time, as you spend resources, as you go, what is this going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now? Will it matter? I hear this a lot. You may never know all of your impact or your influence in this life. And and that is true, and I get it. God will use our life in thousands, prayerfully millions of ways that we will never see. But I will say this, as a pastor in a local church, all cards on the table, I love the church. Love it. Give my life over to it. So this may sound self-serving, but I will tell you this. I have seen so much in the life of a local church over 25 years. It's amazing. Look around the room right now. Over 100 years ago, there were 30 people that gathered in downtown Lexington and said, let's start a church. And for 100 years, Ashland Avenue Baptist Church sought to fulfill and live under the commands of Christ, which led them to plant Ashland in Madison County. It was a mission and a campus. And then look around the room. You know how this started? It started with 60, and then it went down to 30. Real quick. And then we have a church in January from the same church that's going to launch as their own church. And these aren't just generic names of people and places and things. They're people that I love dearly who I see following and living out their lives under all that Jesus commanded. You know what it looks like? It looks like sending Josh and Stephanie Dernell to Lake Shore in New Orleans. I was trying to think today. Was that five? I think it was more like 10 years ago. And every summer I go down there and they've made new friends and they're sharing the gospel with people, and their kids are growing, and they're in the context of that church, and they're making an impact in that community. And there's little kids that when we first started going down there, and we, we were playing with them on a playground, and, and some of them, their mother was holding them as their brothers and sisters played, and we go down there now, and they're, they're five and six years old, and we're, talking, we're, we're teaching them the gospel in VBS. That's what it looks like. Five, 10, 15 years just plotting, teaching the word of God. It's like sending Eric Turner. I don't know. Again, I guess it was 10 years ago. I'm, I, just, I don't even care about time anymore, I don't guess. But I remember sending him to Cordova for two years. By himself, out in the middle of nowhere. And you know what? You can go today to Facebook Live and watch the worship service of a church in Ica. And there there were kids that were born when we first started that that are leading worship in that church today. It's amazing. And for me, I, I I just think this is what matters. Every now and then God gives us a glimpse. Yes, you're giving, you're going, you're sending, you're doing something that matters. And think about all the money and all the prayers that you have given to all those efforts. You're a part of it. We're all a part of it. Notice he says, "'And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age.'" He says, "Look at me, look at me. Look, listen. Behold, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to go with you until this is accomplished." And we see the spirit comes down, Jesus is with them in the spirit. He begins to move through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. And he says, "This is what we're going to keep doing to the ends of the age." This is what Jesus is doing in the world. If you want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, you want to be close to Jesus, blessed by Jesus, get in on this. I know this. 100% of us, we will get to the end of our life and we will have regrets. We will. You're not going to escape that. I don't want one of your regrets to be this. I didn't travel to a group of cannibals in an unreached place and preach the gospel and be killed and eaten. I I don't want that to be one of your regrets. And the reason I say that is because when we talk about the Great Commission so often, you think, I gotta do that. That's not what I'm calling us to today. Not everybody's gonna go. Some people are gonna sin, some people are gonna pray, Some people are going to give lots of money so other people can go. But it moves in and through the church, no matter where you are going. How is this leading to a church? How is this encouraging a church? And so I would say this, you obeying the Great great Commission begins today with a simple commitment to a church and getting in on what God is doing. When you're a part of a church, God doesn't minimize your efforts. He maximizes them. This is why in Ephesians, Paul talks about the church as being this warrior that's got on the armor of God. That's the whole church that is marching to the ends of the earth. And there are hands and there are feet and there are eyes. Hands, feet, eyes off to themselves, seeing, working, walking by themselves. That's hideous and that's ugly. Imagine a foot just walking. It doesn't make sense. But connected to the body Think about all we are accomplishing. Think about all we are doing. And so maybe today you're asking the question, how can I do enough? You can't. You can't do enough to reach the nations. But we together can do what matters. We can be a part of what matters in our homes, in our campus, our job, Walmart, PHC, Pregnancy Help Center, coffee shops. We're evangelizing, we're counseling, we're discipling, and we're sending folks to the ends of the earth. In our response time today, I want you to think about that. How are you a part of this? And maybe that's here, maybe that's another church, but how will you be a part of it here? And all that you're doing here as a parent, as a stu- student, employee, as a ministry leader, Someone in a BFG encouraging others, someone serving coffee, someone opening the doors. How will you be a part of it? How will you get in on what matters?